this lovely music, so appreciate you very much. Uh, let me make a couple announcements uh, before we get, begin, and it mostly has to do with our missions in July and August. <coughs> Ever since I've been here, we've always had an emphasis on missions in the month of July, and now we've kind of extended it into August as well, which is fine. And I just want to say two couple things. One, I really appreciate your support for missions. And we, we had a, um, uh, we typically take a substantial offering in December. And also now, mid-year, in July for missions, our focus on that. And you, you just gave a special offering to help relief with our church in, in Poland that's helping with the Ukrainian uh, crisis and people going there. And I really appreciate that. And I pray that you continue and, and uh, search your heart about how you want to support missions. We do have an offering box in the back, and I just want to encourage you to pray about it and think about what you want to give and, and uh, make a special offering to our, for our missions designated that way. We'll probably, at the end of the month, take a special offering here and uh, to give just to missions. But along the way, uh, pray about it and think about how you want to contribute to our mission effort. If you want to find out more about our missions and our efforts in that regard, I invite you to join us online. We'll have it on Zoom, uh, and we do this on Wednesday nights. And this first week, uh, we're going to have Blake Keenum. He's from Canada, a pastor, church, a lot going on in Canada, and we support him. We want you to know about him and his ministry. Uh, John Jason Gillespie is on the 13th. That's next, the Wednesday after next, and he's starting a church in Columbia, South Carolina. And then following, we'll have Josh Tancordo, who we've heard from before. He's in Pittsburgh, and then the director of AIT, that's our mission board that we work with. Uh, Steve McAllister will round out the end of the month. And I do have more, which I will not list at this time. We have several more in the month of August as well. What we're going to do is uh, we will open a prayer at 6.30 on Wednesdays through the month of July and August online, and you'll get the email. If you don't get the email, see Andy about it. He'll help send that to you, but we'll begin it with prayer at 6.30 to about 6.45, uh, and then we'll uh, hopefully have our um, guest speaker with us and be able to dialogue with them beginning at 6.45 on Wednesdays, and you can tune in anytime, and for those that don't want to use the Zoom and all that, when we send out this email, there's a phone number, and you can just call into the phone number and just listen. I encourage you to consider doing that. Even if you have something else going on, uh, just listen in so that you can be aware of what's going on throughout the world and how we're supporting various uh, missionaries. So mm -hmm. I want you to uh, consider that and to be a part of it. And then this, so the first one will be this week at um, 645 is when we'll hear from uh, Blake Keenum. And if you have prayer or prayer requests that you need to make known, please uh, be sure to send that in, and we'll pray for you. All right, we will go ahead and begin our service this morning with our 
Life of Christ reading from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Good morning. Our call to worship, as Pastor mentioned, is found in Matthew chapter 1. We'll be, I'll be reading verses 18 through 25. This section is entitled, The Birth of Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, G when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. prayer for communion this morning, I want you to prepare your hearts to think on these things. Let me open us in a word of prayer. I'll give you a moment privately where you're at to confess sin, to prepare your heart to worship Christ, particularly in Holy Communion. I'll give you instructions on how we will receive it in just a moment. Take a moment privately, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Father, as we've gathered here together as your people to praise your holy name, to receive a remembrance of Christ this day, I pray the fact that Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins would not fall on our thoughts lightly. We are weighed down with various burdens. We fail to achieve that which you have required. And yet you have laid our sin on Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the atonement Christ has made on our behalf. The wages of sin is certainly death, and Christ has borne that sin for all who put their faith and trust in him. I pray, Father, that this time of remembrance would cause us to think of the great joy that we have, the freedom from the bondage of sin, freedom from the power of the sin even this day, and ultimately from the presence of sin when we commune with Christ directly in his presence in a glorified state. I pray whatever burden that might fill our heart would be lifted in our thoughts of you and the remembrance of this great truth. Not only that you would provide 
a place and prepare a place and bring us there, but indeed that you would dwell with us, that you would bring us to your presence in great fullness of joy. I pray this will be a blessed day of remembrance of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. We'll receive communion in just a moment. Let me give you some instructions on how we'll receive it. What we're going to do, is, and just for the sake of convenience, this is what we do as you're visiting with us, you do not need to be a member of the church to receive communion. But you do need to be in the body of Christ. You need to be a believer in Christ. And as we gave you a moment to prepare your heart to receive Christ so that uh, or receive forgiveness of sins, should I say, so that you wouldn't eat unworthily. What we'll do in just a moment after we pray, we'll have Andy bless the cup and the bread. We'll have this side stand and then come receive both elements, circle around and return back to your seat, the middle and then this side here. We'll then wait together to receive this at the same time. And so we'll um, call you forward in just a moment to receive. Andy, if you would, bless the bread and the cup.
two elements, the cup and the bread, to remind us of Christ's life and his death. Both are essential for us to remember. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to fulfill all the righteous requirements that you'll need to stand before God. There won't be this question asked, but if it were, why should I let you in my he into heaven? It would be simply this. You would point to the righteousness of Christ. That is the merit by which you will come. The second question was, well, how about all of the demerit, all of those things that this accuser of the brethren, Satan, would say against you? those sins that you actually committed. Well, they were actually imputed to you. For, uh, it was actually imputed on Christ for you and for your behalf, just as his righteousness is imputed as well. It is the righteousness of Christ by which you will stand before God, and it is the atonement that is provided in the real and actual death of Jesus Christ. For those that are united with him, then we will live because he lives. Receive this in remembrance of him, his body. And his blood. Let's all stand together and take our hymn books and let's sing about that one foundation that we have in Christ Jesus. The church is one foundation, 346. 346.
flip over to 658. 658. Soldiers of Christ arise. Put on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11. morning, church. Our scripture reading today is Psalm 119, verse 1 through verse 32. I'll be reading from the Pew Bible on page 512. Now, personally, there are uh, many things I'd like to talk about today. Um, missions, America, and, uh, and my th thoughts on the, the text here, but the more I thought about what I might say, the more I really just felt convicted to, uh, to limit my words and uh, just focus on giving you God's word today. Psalm 119, let's look together to the scriptures, starting in verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. 
I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me be not put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Church, let's pray together. Father, our prayer this morning is from your word. Help us all, Father, to walk in your law, to seek you with our whole heart, to guard our way according to your word, and to meditate on your precepts. Holy Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are our delight. They are our counselors. Give us life according to your word. Strengthen us, Father, according to your word. Graciously teach us your law. We pray all this in the name of our holy and precious Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.
take our hymn books one more time and stand and turn to number 657. We'll sing Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Stand Firm in the Faith, Be Brave and Strong. 643, 643, eternal Father strong to save, Lord my God, I seek refuge in you, Psalm 7-1.
Thank you, ladies. Amber, Blake, and Church. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Our focus this morning will be verses 7 through 9, and we'll look at the majesty of Jesus. If you haven't been with us in a while or first-time visitor, we're going through the letter to the Hebrews, as it's called. I've said this is actually a sermon. It's my analysis of it, an exhortation, as the writer would say in chapter 13. It is an ex- uh It is uh, an explanation of the truth of God with great encouragement and warning weaved through it. It reads much like a first century sermon, one that Paul might have preached, but it's recorded and written in a great format, one which reflects the writing of Luke. The focus, nevertheless, of this It's the supremacy of Christ. It begins with the fact that Christ is better than all who came before and spoke on the behalf of God, the prophets. And that's what it says in the first three verses, essentially. Then it moves on and says, well, he's not only better than the prophets, that would be the son, he is better than the angels in in verse 4. Prophets were God's instruments of divine mediation, as we even read this morning from Blake's reading here from the life of Christ, Christ came to fulfill what? All that the prophets had spoken. They came as a voice of of God. God doesn't speak audibly to mankind. That would not be a usual format of communication. He's chosen instead to have representatives speak on his behalf, prophets. Many prophets, in many ways, spoke. But now someone has arrived on the scene that is much better. It is the Son, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, the fulfillment of what all the prophets had spoken about. (coughs) Jesus has come. Angelic beings now is the... letter progresses, were also servants of God. They functioned as messengers as well. They carried out various missions from God as they were instructed. They did even mediate and pass on the law. And they also executed judgment as directed by God. Unlike the prophets, however, these angelic beings could be thought of as superior in the sense that they were not mortal. They had some supernatural power in that they are spirits and they can move rather quickly, but they're not subject to sin or death. In that sense, angels are greater than mankind in that sense. Greater in that they they don't sin and they don't die. So now the sun comes on the scene. He comes through the incarnation. A virgin conceives and bears a son who is from the Holy Spirit. 
Is he something now that's between a prophet and an angel? Because this is someone who is taken on flesh. He's greater than mankind because he is sinless, but lesser than angels in a sense because he has human nature and the possibility of death. This sermon makes it clear Jesus in his essential being has always been superior. Superior in what we would call his essence or his being, his nature. In his humility, he, he subjects himself to mortality through taking on the form of a servant. But that's for a little while. Having resurrected from the dead, then in a glorified state, an exalted state, he is uniquely fitted to then mediate between God and man because he is supreme. He is most excellent. He is plunged to the lowest depths by taking on flesh and is raised to the highest end in his glorified state. He then is declared to be of the highest order. He's always been of the highest order in the sense that he is God. But he takes on human flesh and is made lower for a little while. In his resurrection and his ascension, he's exalted to the throne of God. As we left off last week, in verse 6, angels do worship him. It is only God that you would worship. Angels worship him. You didn't see a lot of that worship in his incarnation. That was his humility, taking on the form of a servant. But in his resurrection and ascension, he takes on, uh, uh, that is, it is clear his role is sovereign. He is coming again, like he came the first time, but different. Different how? Because these angelic beings, in his second coming, he, they will worship him, and it will be clearly on display. I, I had argued before, I think they, they were restrained to some respect since they know that who he is, but there will be no restraint in his second coming. It will be more glorious than you could imagine, and no one will miss it. Those that are united then with this one this King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, we will receive that blessing of being with him, the blessing of glory and honor, not because we're worthy of glory and honor, but because we are united with him, and that blessing of his will overflow to those that are in Christ. That he, he, the author of Hebrews is going to make that point. This is the truth throughout Scripture. I'll just reminds you of one passage, one of my favorites, and I highly recommend spending some good devotional time in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll just pick out a couple of the phrases from he Ephesians 1 for you as way of introduction. We will read the chapter of um, Hebrews 1 in just a moment, but speaking of Christ and the blessings that we have in him, from Ephesians 1, he has 
We are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the praise of the glory of his grace. The idea is his glory of, of his grace is overflowing and blessed with those that are in Christ. He has blessed us in the beloved, that is in Christ. Then we become beloved because of him. As a plan for the fullness of time, what is his plan? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It is in him that we have obtained an inheritance and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the absolute guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is what awaits those that are in Christ Jesus. I, I read, and I understand why people words things a certain way, but I was handed a tract from a fellow I talked to the other day. It was interesting. In the particular track, it, it's a gospel track, and really it emphasized the fact of heaven or hell, which do you want to choose? And that's kind of how it's presented a lot. And I understand why that, and I'm not going to mock that. But if that's all you think about, you have totally missed the boat. You have an inheritance that is beyond imagination. And, and whatever you might possess or have or think is great here. Those are mere trinkets that will soon waste away. Go hold them all you want. G go get the greatest 401k plan you can possibly have, and then the market will crash. <laughs> right? Go, go build the finest edifice you want. They, they will all fall apart. I can tell you one thing, a great treasure, and that is Christ himself. That, that's what the emphasis is. And when we emphasize Christ, that's the point, is to think and focus on him. But, beloved, that glory of Christ overflows and benefits all of those that are in Christ because that's who he is. It, it isn't as if, well, that's something over there for me to look at and admire, which it, it would be. But beyond that, in his grace, it's going to overflow to you, and, and I, I can't grasp precisely how it works in, in that sense, but I can tell you what the Scripture says. That you are, if you're in Christ, you are the beloved one, united with him. And if you're in Christ, what you get is not just a little piece. You get it all. You get Christ, our, our inheritance. And, by the way, it is guaranteed. Everything else <laughs> is not guaranteed. Let's look at our text then in Hebrews, and our focus is going to be 7 through 9, but I often like to put it in the context in which it's given, so I will read the whole chapter. And I want you, if you don't get anything else, to focus your mind on the glory of Christ, and we'll explain a little bit of it along the way. Hebrews 1, long ago and in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
after having make per making perfection for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which, for to which of the angels did he, God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he to be a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your word. Maybe we have ears to hear what Christ would say to the church even this day. I pray in his name. Amen. Notice here, I hope you saw some of that about the superiority of Christ. He, he makes all of heaven in verse 10, and they're going to perish. That's the trajectory of all that you see. It, it, it's going to be finished at some point. But Christ remains, and this is why we call you to put your hope in Christ, in Christ alone. Christ has inherited, verse 4, a more excellent name. This inheritance points to his mediatorial work. It doesn't talk about his essence or his nature, his being. That's woven through this text. I hope you've seen it. There, there are times in which... It's speaking of Christ in terms of his work and other times in which is speaking of him in his essence or his being. He is indeed God, and the author just flows back and forth in that. His inheritance that he gets is, is because of his accomplishment, his, his work. And in verse 8, you're going to see the enthroned king with a kingdom that is enjoyed by his subjects. You, you, you see, the king necess uh, makes it necessary for there to be subjects of the kingdom. And if you're in Christ, that would be you. If you're not in Christ, you're outside of that. He is indeed the king, the anointed one on the throne. Verse 9 speaks of this anointing. The anointing of this one is... Those perfections of who he is result in joy, and that joy will overflow to those that are 
in his kingdom those who he mediates on behalf of. It's clear that he is superior to angels. Verse 7 emphasizes the distinction there of the angels. Note, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. Angelic beings are subject to this anointed king. Their role is to function as ministers and servants to this one. This is a quotation, by the way, from Psalm 104. I'll read it for you in its context, Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. These are ministers of, of Yahweh. They are ministers of Christ. This passage here references Christ and who he is in his essential nature. That is, he is Yahweh. He is described as very great and very in great splendor. The clouds and winds refer to the angelic hosts. And their role is not sovereign, but servants. They carry out the work of the Most High. They fulfill the orders that he gives them. Like wind, they are swift to the task, if you will. They do what they're required to do. And though you may not see them, you will see the evidence of their work. They're working even now, even today, and even here. Verse 14 makes that clear in our chapter. These ministering spirits, what are they sent out to do ultimately to fulfill God's purpose? And they will serve him for the sake of those who will receive eternal salvation. I, I don't know how that works out precisely. Like I said, it's like the wind. You'll see its evidence, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. And so they function like that wind. It's also described here. Not only wind, but notice here, fire as well. This would be judgment, and that is another task of ministering angels. They're accomplishing and intervening, functioning in this role on God's behalf as ministers for good to those that are the elect. But they also function and execute God's judgment that's the idea of this flaming fire. Ultimately, these judgments will be fully on display in a day to come. Following the seven-year tribulation, they, in which they will carry out the instrumentality of God's judgment. I'll read you a passage from Matthew 24, 29. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. By the way, the 
writer of Hebrews, you notice, he, he talks about, their, about the things that are created. They're going to pass away. Well, here's, here's the prophecy of, of that very thing. And then will appear the, in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. That's the imagery again of the Son who is going to come in great power and great glory. The clouds is an idiom to speak of the angelic host that will be around him. And to make that connection, verse 31 of Matthew 24, he will then send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and will gather the elect from the four winds from the end of the heavens to the other. The point's clear. The angelic beings carry out the very will of Christ, both in the salvation of the elect as well as the judgment of those that are in rebellion against him. They carry out his will. Whose will? Who, who is this Jesus? Well, the preacher here in Hebrews helps us out a bit. And I want to focus on two aspects of this righteous king. Notice verse 8 in Hebrews 1. And this is a statement here in verse 8. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of right uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is a fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm 45. We'll look at that in just a bit, and we're going to jump around in a few passages of Scripture, but that's what that is based on. Notice the concepts that are emphasized here when it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is speaking of the Son, who is then said to be greater than the angels. First, you have the note here of his throne, that is, his seat of authority. This is re-emphasizing the point that he's already made in verse 3 of uh, he's sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it should be obvious angels don't have such authority or such position. As great as they might be, they are around the throne, they are about the throne, but they are not in the seat of authority. There is one who is, that is the Son, that is Jesus. The, the, angel, the angelic beings instead are being sent forth from that one who is on the throne. Can I tell you this? Jesus is in complete sovereign authority right now. Even in his function and work in the world in which we live. Remember what he told his disciples in Matthew 28? He told them to go forth and to preach the gospel, to teach them all that Christ had taught them. On what basis? On his authority. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Christ has all authority. In the material realm and the immaterial realm, and on that basis, it is that basis by which this authority is then to go forth and for us to proclaim the gospel and preach to all nations. 
He has been given all authority in Matthew eleven twenty seven. It has been handed over to me by my Father. And then no one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the f- Son except the Father. It is God's divine promise and providence by which he will be revealed, and it is through the Son. It is through the Son and to whom he chooses to reveal him, Matthew eleven twenty seven. It is based on that authority that we will preach the gospel. It could be very discouraging, and some of these missionaries that we'll talk to will talk about very difficult places in time in which they may proclaim and don't get a good response. Maybe they'll get a negative response. Here is the promise that is based on the very authority of Christ that through the instrumentality of preaching the gospel that many will come to believe in Jesus Christ. What's his authority? His authority is over all things. He he has sovereign authority in his essential being as creator. And here it's speaking of his mediatorial work, his delegated authority of the Son to, to speak and to accomplish all things. He has completed his mission to live a, a life of per- perfection, to die on the behalf of those that would put their faith in him. He rose from the dead and he ascended on high to the seat of authority. Jesus is in authority even now. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, I'll read it for you. He raised him, speaking of Christ, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Do you know him? This is Christ. This is Christ the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is in the seat of authority right now, and his authority will reign forever and ever and ever. There is no other power, dominion, or authority that would rise above Jesus Christ. In fact, in our text in Hebrews 1.8, notice he is called God. Your throne, O God. There's only one God, supreme above all. Jesus here is called God. Again, this would be a recognition of his essential nature or being. He is more than a man. He is taking on human flesh, but this would be then God incarnate. He is of a higher order That truth is then demonstrated in the fact that he takes the very seat of authority and he is on that seat forever and ever. In verse 8, notice also it talks about the scepter, the scepter of uprightness. The king's scepter demonstrated and portrayed not only the majesty of his office, but the authority of his office. A scepter would be a straight rod decorated in a beautiful way. It represented that which is true, that which is just, that which is righteous, as opposed to something that is crooked and crass. 
It is beautiful. It is straight. It's pictured as righteous. Many kings don't live up to that symbolism. They have personal flaws in their character. That if, if you measured it by some sort of measuring rod, you would see that it doesn't measure up. It would not be straight. That is different from Christ. He is contrary because he is actually the measure of all things. This, the rod, scepter, here, is really a reflection of who Christ is. It doesn't measure him. He measures it, if you will. He is straight. He is true. He is right. That's the scepter of his uprightness. But I want you to notice something else in this phrase in verse 8. It talks about a kingdom. It says, your kingdom, the scepter of your your kingdom. I kind of alluded to it right, really right at the beginning, if you really think about it. Here you have this great, glorious majesty of a king. He's on a throne. He has all authority. And he is right, true, upright, and righteous. But notice here, he also has a kingdom. And, yeah, that would make sense. If you're a king, you you would have to have subjects. (laughs) You would have to have a kingdom, if you will, that you ruled over. Who's that kingdom? We'll walk through Revelation just for the sake of time, but I'll read you. So go ahead and go to Revelation chapter 1, and I'll show you just a couple of passages. But just to give you the background on it, we've been through the Gospel of John So you should remember this passage from chapter 1. When Jesus Christ is introduced by John in his gospel, he's called the true light. Hence, someone that is pointing to his perfection. The true. The true light, which gives light to everyone. Remember, he is the one by which all else is measured. He is the truth by which everything else is measured. He was the true one coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, that is, have faith in Christ, that describes what it means to receive. It's an expression of faith. He gave them the right to become children of God. And then explains how they got this right. They were born with this right. It's a birthright. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of just making a good decision. Not the will of man, but of God. This is God's sovereign work bringing people to his, and it's described in John as a family. Children. In that description, then, those that are in Christ are thought of as children of God. There's another analogy and way of thinking of it, and that was those that are in that would also, if he's the king, would be part of their kingdom. And that also is an explanation of those that are in Christ, particularly the church. They are of his kingdom. 
If you've turned to Revelation, I want you to see that. And I think we touched on this verse last time when we talked about the idea of firstborn. But Revelation chapter 1, this is to the churches. These are to seven actual churches of that time. And here Christ is speaking to them. These seven churches in Asia, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's Jesus Christ. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is the perfection of Christ. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Notice the firstborn. We talked about that last week. He is the chief, the supreme one. And note here. Verse 5, ruler of kings of the earth. He is the king of kings. To him who, have, who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood, he's made us, and this is what I want you to see, verse 6, he's made us then a kingdom, priest to his God, and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see the phrase there, kingdom? These are the subjects of Christ. These are those that have been freed from their sin by his blood. If you're a Christian, if your sin has been atoned for by Christ, then you are in and can be described as his kingdom. The priest, in the sense, is you function then in a mediatorial sense in this life to bring the good news of the gospel to others, and hence his command to go into all the world for his subjects to do that. His subjects then are described, this is just another way to think of it, not only as a family, but as a kingdom. And his scepter of his kingdom is one that is upright, that is true. To him be the glory forever and ever. Chapter 5 in Revelation, it uses this same idea. 5.10, notice, you have made them a what? A kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You flip over to chapter 20, same idea. Those that share in the first resurrection, that is the resurrection of life, gen Revelation, uh, Revelation 20, verse 6. Over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. You get the picture? The king gathers his loyal subjects, makes them a kingdom of righteousness. There, there is a connection between the king and his kingdom. This is his scepter of his kingdom. The purpose of the king here is not just to demonstrate his authority and his power. It certainly isn't to do so for meaningless purposes. But rather, it, it's a display of the glory of his grace in destroying the kingdom of darkness and bringing to life and light those who were once in a different kingdom into his own glorious kingdom of which is right and righteous and described as light. Paul would tell the church at Colossae in 1.13, he is 
that very thing. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This Christ, this king, then has this glorious and beautiful kingdom. We're brought into it by his grace, and it overflows to great blessings to those that are united with Christ. And at this point, I invite you to turn to Psalm 45, a passage in which this is based. I'll probably jump out of it depending on the time, but you might want to note this because we'll go back to it. Psalm 45 is where you're going to find this quotation from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. You'll find it in verse 6 of Psalm 45. Let me read it in its context. This psalm, if you read through it, it's a messianic psalm. It's a bridal psalm. Messianic in the sense that some of the things that are said here are not fulfilled by those in the immediate context. What is fulfilled is a picture of what's going to happen in the future. Okay? It points to something. Right? It, there's in, in prophecy, that's typically how it would be. It's both the now and the not yet, if you will. In the Messianic Psalms, it's that way too. There are some aspects in which are actually fulfilled and some that are not. And here you have that in this psalm. This psalm is a bridal psalm, a love psalm. So think of a marriage going on. That's the imagery of Psalm 45. And when this is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 1-8, that's what they have in mind when he quotes that. Oftentimes when they quote a passage, it's with the understanding you know the context in which it's given. What's the context? It's a beautiful love song, one that would be played at a wedding. So that's how it begins. My heart overflows with, with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Y you see how it paints this picture of, uh, you know, how weddings are just absolutely beautiful and, wi and, and wonderful. That's the picture that's given here. Glorious might be a phrase in which you could describe it. Verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In the splendor and majesty. See where we're getting the splendor and majesty is right there in the text. The sword here of power and authority. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the peoples fall under you. It's it's a portrayal of the majestic king. It points to Jesus Christ. And here is that phrase which we pick up in Hebrews. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Authority, power, 
It relates to the king of that day when the psalm was written in the sense that he was a representative of, of God, but it is fulfilled in Christ because he actually is the one who finally and fully in reality fulfills that very thing. It points to him. Notice the throne is not one that is temporal. It is one forever and ever. It isn't one that was fulfilled back in time or successively by others because their kingdoms all end. But remember, Christ is one who remains. He is the king forever and ever. And then you have verse 7 in he Psalm 45. This relates to our next verse in Hebrews, verse 9 in Hebrews 1. And here it is in Psalm 45. You have loved righteousness. I'm at verse 7 in Psalm 45. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your com companions. Here it speaks of one who indeed is, is anointed. And remember, the connection, God, your God, here is talking about him in his now it's talking about him in his role as mediator, right? In mediating on behalf of others who would then be able to come to God, the Father, through this mediator, Jesus Christ. Anointing, we're somewhat familiar with that term, I would think. Most of us are. It's a ceremonial process. It's a process by which, incidentally, Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and certainly kings were anointed. This is a commissioning, if you will, for someone who would then be selected out to serve in those various capacities. It is Jesus Christ who fulfills all three of those in absolute perfection. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes that in the first chapter. The word Messiah, by the way, Christ in transliterated from Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, it means the anointed one. When he says anointed here, they know what he's talking about. He is talking about this one, Christ. Now keep your finger in 45. We'll see how we'll, I'll go back to that in a moment. But I want to remind you of a, of, a, of a passage in the Gospels of Luke. And here you might want to turn, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we'll look down to verse oh, 16. Jesus himself declares that he is this anointed one. Who the preacher of Hebrews says that Jesus the Son is. Well, Jesus himself said it. And this is a, a really important passage to tie back into this concept. And I'll explain this in just a moment from Isaiah 61. Jesus comes in Nazareth. I'm in Luke 4, 16, where he'd been brought up. And his custom was to go in the synagogue. There's a place of teaching on the Sabbath day. That's the day that they would have worshipped. And 
he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, notice there, was given to him. That's how they had their Bible, if you will. It would have been a scroll of that book, and the book was the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls it and goes to the portion of reading, and by God's providence, it happened to be this very place from Isaiah 61. And you'll find that in verse 18 of Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has, and I want you to note this, anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. What he's saying there is, this is a quotation of the Messiah who had come. He's described as the anointed one. And what would he do? He had proclaimed the good news, this would be the gospel, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set the liberty to those that are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And note that year of the Lord's favor. We'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 20. He stopped reading right there and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes were fixed on him. The way they would have preached back then was isn't like we do. We stand here and proclaim from a pulpit. Back then they would have read the text. That's a good idea. And then they explain the text. So they do that. But they just do it sitting down. I might have to try that when I get older. But any case, that was their way of doing this in authority. He sat down then to speak in authoritative, explanatory way. And what does he say? Verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is, what is being fulfilled? He is the anointed one, the prophet, the priest, the king that has come to speak. And what is his mission at that point in time? It is to preach the good news, that is, the gospel. He stops right there and sits down. Now here... We're done with Luke. Let's go to Isaiah 61. And we may get back to Psalm 45 here, I think, in a moment. But this is worth looking at. Let's see what Jesus was reading and put ourselves in that context. He calls himself the anointed one. He identifies in that role, fulfilling that of the prophet, priest, and king to make that proper proclamation. And if you're in Isaiah 61, if you found that so far, Isaiah 61, this, it's essentially what we've just read. Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me, anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison of those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I told you we were in Luke to remember the year of the Lord's favor because that's, that's where he stops, the year of the Lord's favor. But what's the next phrase? And the day of vengeance of our God. There's two events. One is in his incarnation when he proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord, and the other is this day of vengeance that is going to come. His preaching of the gospel will result in the comfort of those who mourn, 
Grant to those who mourn in Zion and give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And note this, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint a spirit, and they should be called oaks of righteousness in the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. If you read through Isaiah, and it's a lot, I know, this is a lot of content, but if you read through it, you're going to find this concept of the Messiah who would come and be the anointed one. The anoint and he would function as a servant. You find it in chapter 11, 48, 49, and 50, and of course here. The benefits of him are immediately fulfilled in Israel as they're delivered from their captivity in Babylon. But it is a picture of future and final deliverance by Jesus Christ to all of those who are in not physical bondage, not temporal, but permanent, eternal, spiritual. Tom Constable walked through Isaiah 61 in his commentary and pointed out six concepts that I think are very helpful that you'll find directly here in this text. When Jesus sits down and says, I'm going, this is being fulfilled, what's being fulfilled right now in the year of the Lord's favor, which exists right now? Number one, it's hope. He would mend the hearts those that are broken by life, those that would be despairing and have no hope, he would give hope to the hopeless. Second, this anointed one says that he will come and he will take those that are captive in bondage and free them. Ultimately, it looks to the freedom that is in Christ, the freedom from the bondage of sin. And third, I want you to note here that in this proclamation, it is a proclamation of justice, of justice for all. Today we have a certain way of speaking about justice segmented in certain ideas and ideologies. This is beyond that. And I understand that people might be hurt or broken or some unjust thing may have very well happened to you. Guess what? This favor of Christ will result in, ju in absolute justice. Did you remember that phrase there, 61-2? This, this is a year of favor. But justice will come on a single day. It is a day of vengeance. It is a favorable year of God, but a day of vengeance in which he will come. This is speaking of his second coming when everything will be put to right. That's why Jesus Christ sat down and taught, because right now is the year of favor. It's the year of mercy. It is the year of grace. But be assured, there is a day of vengeance. The day of vengeance will come at his return. It is notably the day of the Lord at the end of the tribulation when he will return. This, this anointed one will come and justice will be carried out. Fourth, from Isaiah 61, 
Notice the, the concept of comfort that is given. Th those who have mourned because their sins have doomed them. They recognize that the wages of sin is death and, and they're therefore guilty. Comfort is brought about here in the favorable year of the Lord. And verse 61, uh, I mean, I meant to say verse 3 of chapter 61, notice also you have joy that's mentioned. He'll give joy to the mourners. This is, relates to this idea of oil of gladness from Hebrews 1, 9. God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The good news means there is great joy to those that are in Christ, a fullness of joy in him. And finally, number six, life. That's what the imagery here in 61 is. It talks in a poetic way, trees flourishing in righteousness. It's talking about enabling grace that will allow you to glorify Christ. It's talking about something that is strong and something that is durable. It is talking about flourishing. It's a problem that humanity has and has, is rightly concerned about. The temporal nature of life, the fact that we may not flourish, that what we have and hold to now and enjoy there may be a famine that comes, if you will, disease. There may be catastrophes that occur or come our way. What is promised in this favorable year of God's grace is great flourishing. It will be realized in his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness. Notice here, too, in... Uh, in back to our text in Hebrews chapter 1, the connection here, not only the oil of gladness, but verse 9, it says, beyond your companions. The oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's been a lot of ink spilled trying to figure out who the companions are. It's only used here in the book of Hebrews, and it's also used by Luke, which is one of the indications that perhaps Luke penned Paul's sermon. Nevertheless, the oil of gladness here is talking about the, the oil of, of joy in Isaiah. This oil that would be anointed and poured down on prophet, priest, and king pour down on the top of his head and then it flows down to his garments and it goes beyond that because they keep dumping it on him and it goes off the feet. The imagery is th this joy that comes overflows and is not just for the prophet, priest, and king but it is for those that are in companion with them. It symbolizes the overflow of this joy of what is given. What's given? Hope, freedom, justice,
comfort, joy, and life. You see the, you see the, the anointing that he, that he receives, that is symbolized by all of those concepts flowing down, not just to be absorbed by the one receiving, but to overflow to those that are in connection with him and companions with him. Beloved, do you want hope? Do you want freedom? Do you want justice? Do you want comfort? Do you want joy? Do you want real life? Come to Christ. He is the anointed one who overflows in all of that. And those that are companioned with him, united with him, will indeed have that. Now, I told you that we would look at Psalm 45, and I think I've got a minute. Andy messed the clock up, so I'm good. Back to Psalm 45. You had the anointed king at the very beginning of the psalm. And in the second half, it talks about the bride. Companion. His kingdom. In this imagery, verse 8, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. You get the picture? Why? Because he's the anointed one and he has this, these beautiful spices all flowing down. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. That's why we like these stringed instruments. Aren't they glad and joyful? That's the picture of it. Again, imagine a, a wedding, this beautiful fragrance, this beautiful sound, this beautiful sight. Daughters of kings are among you, and your ladies of honor at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. This would have been the, the, the best that they would have known of at that time, the highest quality. It's just a way to express the majesty and glory and the beauty of it and the connection of those that are with him, the companion of the king, those that are in this triumphal ceremony. And so the admonition is given in verse 10 here. Simply this, here. Here means to listen with your ears and beyond that with your heart and with your hands to respond to it. Consider this, O daughter, he says, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will be the desire of your beauty since, she is the, since he is your Lord. Bow to him. It, it, it is a wedding motif and ceremony in which a man and wife, they, they, they leave and cleave, if you will, right? Well, all of that is to picture the truth and the reality of it is leave everything else and come to Christ. He's your king. Get the picture? That's what's being portrayed here. So what will happen if you leave all others and come to Christ? If you make Christ the priority of your life, not yourself, not your stuff, not whatever else you put, but look to the king, what do you get? Verse 12 is a... Again, a rich description of it, putting it in the motif of the time so that you can get an image of it. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts of the richest people. He's talking about great inheritance. 
all-glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes of interwoven gold. In many color robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of a, of a uniting, of a ceremony. This is what you get when you get Christ. Fifteen, joy and gladness are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In your place that your fathers shall be your sons and, and you will make them princes of the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations and therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. It's, it's talking about a great wedding event. And I don't have time to explain this in detail, but I'll point you to it. For those that are in Christ, they're also described as the bride of Christ. And one day there will be a great wedding. Have you heard of it? The marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what all of this is picturing. And don't take my word for it. I'll just give you John's and you can listen because he heard it from Christ and we'll close. From Revelation 19. I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. See the kingly idea. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It's been granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you give us a vision of the glory of Christ, which overflows to our great joy. I pray that Christ would be the focus and priority of our life. And may we be overcome by the goodness of who you are and the overflow of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Beloved, I want you to take a moment now to respond to Christ in the way he's spoken to you. And if you're outside, if you are wondering if you have an invitation to this, it's real simple. Come. Come to Christ. Take a moment now and speak directly with him. Take a moment. Oh, Father, I pray that you will continually draw us closer to you, that you may be lifted up and glorified in all of our life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you knew I wanted to do something different. What is that? Hallelujah to the... What's that called? We will glorify what number yet? Well, let me look at it.
I love to throw an audible, especially when the ladies are here with their instruments and strings, though. Well, I'd rather glorify Christ. America is beautiful, but we will glorify the King of Kings. We will glorify the Lamb. We will glorify the Lord of Lords, who is the great I Am. Y'all want to sing that together? Let's do it now. 22 in your hymn book. Thanks for indulging me. I lift my eyes to the hills from whence does my help come my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth he will not be he will not let your foot be moved he who keeps you will not slumber behold he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep the Lord is your keeper the Lord is your shade on your right hand the sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, we're indeed thankful that you are our strong shield and our buckler, and you have <coughs> us in your heart at all times. Lord, we just give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>
you doing, my friend?